Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Addictive Pod. Today, I'm so excited to introduce a guest for you guys. It's somebody that I've had on the show before. It was over a year ago that she was on the show to share her story of recovery from a night eating disorder. And on this episode, we talk about a few topics that come up all the time in conversations I have with people in recovery, and not just people with eating disorders. The topics that we focus on in this episode are body image issues and sexuality. And the chances are either you have body image issues or somebody very close to you that you care about has body image issues. And so I really hope that this episode is helpful for you guys. It helps you to understand this better. And I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed recording it. So let's get into it. And please join me in welcoming Jillian Young Barkalo. Jillian Young, welcome back to the Addictive Pod. It's so good to meet you face-to-face once again. Nice to hear you again, but see you for the first time. (laughs) For sure. I remember, it's actually episode number two, and the Discover Your Why, that's the episode we did, one of my all-time favorites, and this episode is going to be number 52, which is Oh my goodness, good for you. I know I didn't I didn't plan it that way, but it's number fifty two, which is really it's really interesting. Coming full circle. It's a new a new chapter in the podcast. And I thought that the last time we spoke, it was all about discovering your why and applying that specifically to breaking out of addiction and addictive behaviors like eating disorders. And now I want to talk about the recovery side. Like let's say you've discovered your why. You know that you want to be healthy and you know you don't want to Um, abuse food and what I want to know is how you start to cultivate that healthy appreciation of your body and how you start to find balance right because addiction is all about those extremes and I want to know what that experience has been like for you finding that balance lately totally and I think it's been such a wild journey for me that's looked different and when you approached me for this like I really actually at first I was like I'm not ready yet because there's been so many levels, especially over the past year for me, you know, when I first recovered from a initial anorexia, I was what, like 16, 17. That's when the process started, of course. And then I had night eating syndrome. Um, and then I had a really emotionally abusive relationship. And after that, I drank heavily. So I've gone through so many phases with my body and with health that it's always looked very different. And, and to speak for recently, um, it's a, it's a very new stage for me. And that is exactly what you're talking about in finding that middle ground and moderation. Um, you know, even, I think when we last spoke, I was still coming out of competitive bodybuilding, right? Which is another the bikini competition. So like, yeah. I feel like I've done all these very extremes into this place now where I'm finally finding a middle ground. I'd like to hear you talk more about that, the, the bikini competition and the, the affirmation you got from that, right? Because you're, you're working out so hard, you're being so meticulous about what you eat, obviously, to compete at that level and to um, transform your body like that. It's, it's an athletic sport, really. And people will applaud you for that and people will celebrate the accomplishment, but you shared on your Instagram about how that wasn't really healthy and it wasn't really what your body needed. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Totally. And, and one of the challenging things with bodybuilding is there was a lot of good and the good was in the building. So 
you know, before you cut down for a show and show up this lean statuesque body, there's a stage of building. And that's where I really learned to be comfortable with eating more and weighing more and building muscle and letting go of any idea that I'd ever been told on what a body, especially a female body should look like. And I found that stage so empowering. And the unfortunate thing is during that stage, no one would say anything to me. And then I would start getting super lean to go on stage and I would have low energy. I would be faint in the gym. I'd be starving. And then I'd get compliments. Right. And, you know, that's the body that you see on magazine covers. That's the body that we're told is healthy, but in reality often isn't. And that was a really hard thing to wrap my head around. And as I posted about today, I kind of had to grieve that because that part of me was so celebrated and literally got trophies for looking that way. And you know, did great photo shoots and, and had a lot of recognition for that where, you know, where I met now just being healthy and moderate, people aren't wowed by that. But luckily now I'm cultivating healthy self-esteem where I'm not as hungry for that as I once was. So if it isn't the applause of other people and the affirmation from other people, what is it that feeds you now? Like, what is it that really that that gives you that sense of fulfillment that gives you that sense of uh, appreciation for your own body and for your own health a really cool stage right now um that i feel like is about embodiment so you know for example leading up to those shows and afterwards like i often struggled with digestive issues severe bloating you know feeling just exhausted and now my really big goal is just to respect and appreciate my body to do movement that feels good to wear what feels good and a feeling of I literally feel like I've come back into my own skin and I feel so much more at home in my body Mm. and I'm not really concerned with anyone's opinion but how I feel and I feel really good obviously I have bad days you know but for the most part it's a beautiful and I'd say very sensual place to be. That is so cool. And that is such an interesting way to talk about it because it it really casts a light on what it was like before, right? Which is disembodiment. It's feeling not yeah. at home in your body and feeling almost uncomfortable or ashamed or yeah, it's such a it's such a bizarre state and it's a state that I would say is more common than what you're describing now, like much more common, and especially with women and women that I know in my life, it's it's like a epidemic of body image issues that exists even outside of addiction, even outside of um, oh yeah eating disorders. It, it can manifest in this way where they just people don't feel comfortable with their body, and they don't feel comfortable with anybody seeing their body, or they don't even feel that it is them, and they almost identify with something mm. else. Like I'm trapped in this body. Yeah. Can you tell me more about how it's sensual? What do you mean by that? Being embodied? It's it's hard to put into words, but there is a feeling when, so, you know, before and what we often see is like people pushing, you know, pushing when they're tired, you know, not listening to their body to rest, not eating when they're hungry and something happens. And I experienced this when I was younger and in Europe and it was like, 
you know, eating these beautiful meals, you know, taking midday naps, like, and embracing that lifestyle there, I always felt so sensual. And I feel like I'm reclaiming that now. And it's because I feel so embodied, I do feel sexier, I do feel so at peace and comfortable. And that cultivates a sense of just sensuality, mm. you know, and even for me, clothing is a big thing. And like, I just wear things that I think feel luxurious and beautiful. And again, it's about how I feel versus anyone else's opinion or perspective. And I've always thought in other people, like I used to work in retail and it's, for me, it was always the women and it was never a certain body shape, anything, but the women who just felt good in their skin and walked a certain way and own their shit, they would walk in and you were like, damn, they're sexy. <laughs> That's what people say, right? <laughs> confidence is sexy and confidence is rooted in that self-esteem and in that feeling of being comfortable with yourself, right? Totally. Are there any practical things that you did or practical um, habits and routines that helped you to cultivate that and cultivate the sense of embodiment? Yeah. So one that sounds so silly, but I love and I've noticed there's a lot of cultures that really embrace this. Like when I was in Japan, this was a big thing. Um, I've noticed like within black culture, there's a big thing with like body scrubs and lotions um, and that level of self care. Um, so for me with depression and with body issues, I actually often struggle to shower. Was it a fear around showering of almost seeing yourself or was it just no motivation to get out of bed? It was a coupling of lack of motivation, but also it was such a vulnerable feeling. For some reason, baths, because I could be like submerged in water, felt less, less vulnerable. Mm. But showers always felt like anything but for a long time that I had to feel really vulnerable with my body, even if that was being present, you know, um, was very scary. And even like rubbing lotion in my body. So now like I've cultivated routines of buying beautiful body scrubs by small companies that I want to support and then rubbing lotion all over my body and putting on a nice pair of pajamas at night. And that alone has been a big thing. You know, these simple acts of self-care, especially if it's something that you struggled with before, but I always tell women, one thing I love is to, um, and men as well in any, any gender to rub lotion all over your body and say positive affirmations and again, it sounds so cheesy, but it really, you know, the words we say to ourselves matter. And if you do that over and over again, there's this really sweet, loving thing. And, you know, I contrast that to remembering like 10 years ago, doing an exercise where I had to stand in front of the mirror and really look at myself. And I started bawling because I had not been intimate with myself and I didn't know how to love myself in that way. Right. And getting intimate with yourself in that way is so important and so hard to do when you've been so disembodied for so long. The relationship with yourself, I've been exploring that more, almost like a romantic relationship. And I shared this on a podcast. Ooh. Yeah, I shared this on a podcast. I love And it's this. the funniest thing that, it, like, it sounds ridiculous to say. And, but no, I, I, I would take it. myself on a date and like make myself oh, a nice meal and you know like dress up or make my room nice as if I was having somebody over for a date but it's just me and so your practice yes. of 
what I like about what you mentioned is that it's more it's tactile, right? It's it's the senses are involved and you're really getting out of your head and into your body and your stomach and your hands as you're putting lotion on. It's it totally makes sense to me why that would help. I don't think it's ridiculous at all. I think everybody should try it. I'm definitely going to try it. And I I agree with what you're doing too, like dating yourself and I mean, I the, the making meals for yourself is a big one too. I remember when I was like 16, making a friend a meal and I made them this beautiful sandwich and I grilled them and I put it all pretty on the plate. And I remember being like, well, yeah. I never do that for myself. <laughs> you're just making sure you get the macros or whatever. Like, you're not... <laughs> yeah. So it is an act of love. And I don't do that enough when you really put an effort in your own plate because it is, it's a whole sensual experience, you know, and if you make it beautiful, all of your senses are involved. So. I love that. I got to get better at that. I I'm a huge foodie, as oh, you yeah. probably know, but sometimes I do throw things. And that's bowl. and that's the problem with dieting, and or one of the problems that can come up with dieting is that, and and it happens with me all the time is I I become so focused on the macros and focused on the nutrition aspect that I don't even put the care into making it taste good or look good, or I don't put the care into it as I would if I was cooking dinner for my girlfriend, not even like a 10th of the care, right? Because it's just like, oh, I have to, Mm -hmm. I have to stuff my face and make sure I'm, I'm hitting these goals. And it's, what's your experience been like around food specifically and around planning meals and, or not planning meals? What's your experience been like? I actually love that you said that because I hadn't thought about that, but I've also in the past few months let go of macro counting because for me, it robbed the sensuality of food from me. And that was a big part of my initial healing from my eating disorder. I got super into cooking. I lived in Europe. Wow. I developed a very romantic relationship with food where I found it beautiful. I loved listening to chefs. I grew such an appreciation of where things came from, how they were grown, like every element of it. And I think that like really, really helped me in so many ways. And actually I was always sort of bothered by that when I got into fitness and I started macro tracking and weighing my food because following recipes is stressful. Going out for dinner is stressful. When you're thinking all in numbers, you can really remove that part of it. And so letting go of that in the past few months, and it was really hard for me to let go because I've been doing it for so long. And so I'd like kept like trying to, but I'd like <laughs> plug things in my fitness pal and I'd be like, oh ah. no. <laughs> and I finally, luckily, like just through, I had a couple, like two and a half weeks alone in LA this year. And I really came home to myself during that time alone. And I was doing creative work and I just was eating what I wanted when I wanted. And after that, I couldn't turn back because I felt so, again, embodied and good in my skin and my digestion was better. And my everyone was like, your skin is glowing. What are you doing? And I was like, listening to my body, like honoring my needs. Imagine that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I ate when I was hungry. What? <laughs> and like, it was crazy. crazy. It was like, all of a sudden, I was like less bloated. I had better energy, like things that I'd been wanting for so long, just by, you know, because our, our daily needs change. So, following the same macros every day doesn't even make sense from a logical standpoint, you know? Like, some days you're going to need more calories or more carbs, or 
less protein or more protein. And I think our bodies are pretty smart. And when we listen to that and build that trust, there is a beautiful thing that happens. That being said, I'm so glad I did the macros thing because it was a huge learning experience. It taught me to eat enough. It taught me what it does take to look a certain way and build a certain physique, which again, is not at all my priority right now, but I have a very realistic idea of that. And when I work with people, I can explain like, okay, you want to look like that? Mm. Are you willing to weigh your food, do routine workouts? Like it's possible. And if you really want it, all the power to you, but it's not for me and it's not how I coach anymore. Amazing. It's, it's a totally different transition. And I think it, it's almost counterintuitive when you are surrounded with the the science or the the whole um, worldview of you need to be meticulous, right? You need to have the plans. You need to have an exact sort of rigorous science as to how to achieve this physical goal and health goal. And so to throw that all away and to <laughs> to say no, like I'm I'm going to trust my gut on this. And it's something we talked about a bit earlier: trusting your gut and learning to trust that intuition, which is part of being embodied, right? Were there yeah. Were there moments when you were learning to trust your gut that you made mistakes and did the wrong thing? And how did you manage that? Yeah, there, there's, I mean, I think there's always that in your journey, right? And and so one thing like I'll tend to do is under eat naturally because I am like a very live in my head person. Me too. So, you know, having had night eating syndrome, I literally can't not eat enough or my body will tell me very loudly by getting up at 2 a.m. starving right, right. <laughs> that I'm not eating enough. So I definitely had some nights, you know, as I stepped away from macros and all of that. And so it was a big wake up call for me. So now like there are certain things I can't fully do intuitively. Like I have to consciously make sure I'm eating regularly throughout the day, eating calorie dense foods. Like I have to put a little more effort in because if I were to just eat intuitively, I would probably ha- just have coffee for breakfast and then chocolate and then right. <laughs> a so the snack guy... and then a beautiful dinner. And then eat like way too much snacks at like 2 a.m. basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's it's an art form. And I think you can master intuitive eating. And I feel like I'm there on some level. But I've always said it's not for everybody. You know, if you have ADHD, if you have a history of an eating disorder, I think there is a level of planning that has to take place. And I realized that for myself, I just have to have certain guidelines. So for me, it's like balance your blood sugar, pack snacks with you. Like I'm big on, you know, having things like nut butter and lots of fats in my day just to make sure I'm hitting enough calories. I want to talk about, because we brought it up a little bit before with sensuality and it's a tricky topic, but I wanted to talk about sexuality and how all of these issues especially body image issues how that can affect sexuality and then how it can be repaired and if you're comfortable Mm -hmm. talking about it did you ever experience basically disruptions to your sexuality or inability to be intimate with people because of body image issues totally and and to be totally transparent i would say i'm still a work in progress um because on so many levels like I had my eating disorder you know when I was much younger and then I looking back for years I used alcohol as a you know 
number for play of kinds to for sure. to be for able sure. to be present and be sexual because it was still a little uncomfortable for me. And looking back, like I think I used that for quite a long time. And then my first um, super intimate long relationship was someone who was really emotionally abusive and they would do that sexually as well. So it was like, there was a lot of shaming and, you know, like, well, we have to do it now. Like a right. lot of weird stuff around that. So I'd say there's like a double repair that I've had to do. And I would say now I'm in the best place I've ever been, but I still have goals to be even more because I think sex is amazing. And I'm like now in this amazing place where I'm with someone I love so much who I feel so safe with. And I'm often just like, how lucky are we? Like we we're like these two teenagers who like are really into each other and we could do whatever we want. That's awesome. And I don't feel like I'm taking advantage of that enough. You know, like I do. I would like to explore more. I would like to be able to get more out of my head, you know? So I feel like every year month is better because I am more and more embodied. I think doing so much inner work in therapy and like working through my shit. And then the more I do that, like the hotter my husband is. That's awesome. I let go of like, my stuff and I'm like whoa I'm yeah. so lucky and this is such a healthy relationship like I can see it so clearly now so I, I kind of feel like I'm starting over I feel like I'm like 16 now and I'm like this is cool <laughs> but like I'm still kind of scared but I'm getting into it yeah yeah that's awesome <laughs> though there's the child there's the childish like curiosity there as well and the enjoyment and that's an amazing thing to experience I think at at the root of it all and and you brought this up with talking about therapy is that it it's psychological like it's a mental thing that's going on here it doesn't really have to do with how much i weigh or what i look like or um whether i'm fit enough or all of these things that some of these insecurities that can come up around sex and i think that when you do that inner work what what really changed for you? Was it was it around self-esteem or or was it around sort of letting go and releasing the negative things that, that happened in that relationship? Like what, what did the inner work really do for you? I think there was so much, you know, and I think I realized that part of my survival mode was sort of living in the fantasy of things versus the reality of things. And like, so I liked the idea of sex versus the act if that makes sense. Like I always liked the idea of like escapism and living in my head. And then with the actual act, it was like mm. so vulnerable and so scary. Um, and a lot of my inner work has been undoing a lot and working through childhood stuff and seeing where that part of me comes from. And so the more I work through that, you know, and learn moderation and learn being present, I feel like that's really helped me to, be in the moment to come into my body to experience where before, you know, again, I used alcohol for so long as I, right. I couldn't fully be there. I think there was so much fear for so many reasons, you know, my eating disorder, my previous marriage. Um, and then even like, you know, I can see now like deep childhood stuff, you know, mm -hmm. just it, it, it all plays a role in who we are as adults. And as you untangle it, you're like, Holy, 
<laughs> it's crazy. You just so sort of go, oh my God, on. this is why I am the way I am. And it, you go through phases, as I'm sure you know, mm. where you're like angry and then confused. And you're like, oh my God, my whole personality is based in trauma. And then eventually you're like, okay, I'm a pretty cool person. I've been through shit. Everyone's been through shit. How do I yeah. make the best of my life? And that's also why you feel like a little kid sometimes is because that little kid kind of got blocked, right? And then it, yeah. it's allowed to continue at where it was at. And I have those moments where I literally feel like I'm seven or eight. And it's right? such an amazing, fun experience of just looking at the world. And and that's because the seven or eight-year-old had to hide for a while. You know, he wasn't able to be himself or do what he wanted to do. And it's such an amazing process of uncovering that. I totally agree. I love that. And I always say that the people who you feel like a little kid around, which for me are like my closest friend and my husband, like we laugh our pants off all day, every day. I'm like, those Good. are your people because that's your yeah. true self coming out. Who's like, just for you to be your true, true self. Right. Yeah. If you can't laugh about farts with your partner, then right? it's not, it's not. <laughs> Um, you gotta laugh i mean you also should always be able to laugh during sex i think yeah that's another thing that's another thing you have to be comfortable enough you have to be comfortable enough Sometimes and also recognize that some things are funny yeah right? <laughs> yeah so with the fantasy thing i'm sorry i'm having realizations as i talk to you with Love the it. fantasy thing you know we're actually sold that idea too and i see this so much now in in songs and movies and you know, this was a big part of me being in a romantic relationship with a narcissist because they mirror that so much. It's like the highs and lows, the butterflies, the extremely sexual, the, you know, this fantasy idea of what love and sex is. And I was so fueled by that for so long. And that's not what it is. You can have moments of that in a healthy relationship, but it's also funny. It's also gentle. It's also safe. Like it's, so many more things that I don't think were were shown enough and that are talked about enough. A hundred percent. It's uh, it's all Hollywood's fault, and it's all <laughs> old fair <laughs> old fairy tales as well. Just all all of the all the myths around around love and romance, and it's just not realistic. I think everybody rips off that bandaid eventually and starts to realize. And I was thinking about this a little bit earlier uh, when you were talking about being in your head. Because sex should be and can be the most embodied experience that we can have. Like it's, in my opinion, the most embodied. But if you're in your head, it can become a very bizarre escape. And it can become something that's not really, not true intimacy, I don't think. It, it can become almost um, just an action while there's other things going on in your head. And were there any things that you did actions that you took that helped you to be more present and helped you to be more in your body, especially during sex? Yeah, I think it's still a conscious, constant decision. You know, it's like when you work through your anxiety and, you know, previous body image stuff, and you have to constantly, what I call like interrupt your thoughts. Like, I feel like I always have to do that for a certain amount of time before I can get into things fully. And if you talk to any woman on the planet, like, we naturally, our brains want to make grocery lists and think of all things we have to do. Like, it's not just it's women. This... It's not just women. <laughs> so I guess everybody. I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> but I know for you, so many people, it's so hard to get out of your head in general. And, you know, I think I use the same tools that I use when I have anxiety where it's like, okay, let's like focus on a feeling. Let's focus on a texture. Let's focus so that you can come into your present state, which is hard to do. And when you do in sex in real life, it's nothing short of magical where you're like, oh, I feel, I feel the moment and there's nothing to worry about and I can just be in it. Hmm. And that's when you're like, wow, <laughs> that's where the magic happens. That's awesome. That is magical. And speaking of magic and romance, how do you find that person who can accept you for who you are and make you feel vulnerable, make you feel safe to be vulnerable and make you feel safe when you're intimate that you can laugh with? How do you, how do you discover that person and find that person and build a relationship like that? Yeah, I wish there was a recipe, but I think, you know, you, you don't fight to be with someone where there's mind games or you never know your worth. I think, you know, for a lot of people that I've seen with all my close friends too, it's like, I always know, like my friend will always call me and they're like, I met this guy. And they're not like, oh my God, I don't know if he likes me or, oh my God, the sex was amazing. It's always this like, I feel really good. Hmm. There's this sense of like home and safety and I wish it for everybody. And it's, again, it's not the love we're sold. So it can be hard to spot. Hmm. And for me, actually, it was really, really difficult because, and I've heard this from many people who've been in narcissistic relationships where you, your idea of love is so skewed and you've basically um, formed almost an addiction to the highs and lows. Like they, they say like coming, and I, I don't know, like I don't want to abuse saying this, but like that coming out of a narcissistic relationship is like coming off heroin. Like, wow. Because even like, if you think of like the brain chemistry component, like it's someone who initially love bombs the hell out of you, creates this intense connection that you've never experienced before. And then they drop you and bring you up just enough so that you like are reminded of that initial love and this up and down continues until they want to discard you. Right. And they so use that manipulation that to get whatever they want or make you act however they want. Exactly. And they basically degrade you so that your confidence is depleted and reliant on then giving you tidbits to feel like you're worth anything. So it's, it's so horrible. And I've seen it in so many people that I love and it's across the board, this exact formula. And I've studied it and read about it a lot. So when you've been through that and then you meet someone who's healthy and good for you, mm. you're like, oh, like <laughs> you're kind of bored. Like it's not yeah. what you're used to. Like it's very safe and genuine and there's no mind games. And when you're coming from the other, it can be very confusing. and you know, you might not think it's your soulmate because your experience of thinking of a soulmate is so different. So I personally had to like really work through my shit to realize how lucky I was and how much I loved the person who became my husband because he was so genuine. He was, you know, no mind games straight up. And luckily he was the most persistent man on the planet or it may not have <laughs> happened where he kept going and trying and trying and trying. Eventually I was like, fine you're perfect like god <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> that's funny 
because at the first at the first uh, response to somebody like that, especially coming from past relationships and having this fantasy sort of painted by other people and by all these other characterizations of romance, the the good partner doesn't appear to be that good. They appear to be yeah. maybe maybe boring, maybe um, not enough or not uh, not exciting enough and. We want more. I think people are very greedy by nature. We want the best possible thing, right? So especially if someone appears available, sometimes we don't notice them at first because, oh, eh, you know, I could I could take it or leave it. Yeah, we're taught like too that the mind games and the like the person who's unattainable is what we want. And yeah. so, you know, I always tell people like just give give the nice people a chance, you know, and, and play it out. And what I've learned, like, so effing cool that I've been married for five years now, five years now Congratulations! Um, with my husband for like eight and I am more attracted to him, more turned on by him every year. That's awesome. And this is like when you, when you find someone you can really build with and really trust, I mean, in the end you get way better everything and you get the true magic, you know, versus with someone who's going to f around with you and slowly degrade you, like the it becomes like living hell basically. Yeah. And looking back on you know my past relationships, I'm like, oh, like <laughs> why was I attracted to those people or my husband every day? I'm like, hot damn, like he's hot and he's a nice guy and he's just like check check. <laughs> well, you were a different person, right? I think that yeah, it it's it would be crazy to think that these past relationships that we had were just because of our crazy partners. Like we, and and I speak for myself because I had a very crazy partner. Like it was just not a good situation. And I have to recognize my part in that. The fact that I chose that person and stayed with them for years, right? Because physically I was never trapped, right? Physically I could walk out at any, yeah. any time, but psychologically and, and emotionally, um, I I did choose that situation and it's it it takes a long time but it's totally possible to to recover from that and change what you're attracted to and and you're evidence of that right what you're experiencing now is so incredible because you did the work right you did all that therapy you did all those practices and changed who you are and who you want to be with and and simultaneously I just want to honor you know for anyone who's been in abusive relationships of any kind that when you're in it, you you don't feel like you can no. leave and it's not your fault. So I want to be clear about that too. Um, I think the only way to heal is to do the inner work. But I mean, just like for anyone listening who's in that or has been in that, like there was nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you um, in not feeling like you could get out. Well said. But yeah, definitely learning my value has helped. But also, what I feel is not talked about enough is you don't have to heal first to attract the right person. Hmm. And this is a narrative we heal over and over is you have to be you have to do all your work to find the right person. I think community healing or healing and partnership is a really powerful thing with the right person. Obviously, if you're still doing your own work at that time, you know, and not putting all your shit on them, hopefully, but in a safe space especially when you've been through, you know, really unhealthy partnerships, it can be a relearning together. And that could be a super beautiful thing. And that's what I feel like I got to experience. 
I am so curious about that. I love I love that you said that. And I what I I guess what I want to know is how do you because you're right, we are told that. We are told you kind of have to be perfect first and then you kind of will magically attract this perfect person because you are perfect, right? So how do you yeah. knowing that you're imperfect, how do you grow in the relationship and how do you still I guess take that time that you need to yourself and that time that you need for the inner work? while in a partnership. Ideally, you find someone who's really patient and will give you space um, and work through that rebuilding together. And that also takes someone who's going to be patient when you are hyper-reactive. You know, when you're freaking out that they can go, like my husband had to many times be like, I am not that person. Like, I will never use anything to manipulate you or hurt you. And I had to like, sit with that and be like okay like you're right i'm i'm reacting to something from the past mm. you know and simultaneously i had to have a lot of therapy a lot of things that i went off and did on my own you know i've done a lot of workshops and things and even though he doesn't understand he's always respected it and just been like go do your thing you know i'm here for you and i purposely not dumped on him but been like hey this is why I am this way this is why I do these things the more I learn and I want you to understand you know and not to make light of certain things so creating those you know even boundaries within the relationship uh, this is what I need this is what I need to do this is what I need you to be patient with so hella communication which yeah. was a learning experience for me too because I was used to you know just going quiet and not speaking up about things to then be like, okay, hmm. this is awkward, but this is why I'm weird. This is why I do this. <laughs> Those conversations <laughs> suck, but they're so good because you come out the other side. You face the fear, right? It's scary. You face that fear of rejection and fear that this person will be like, oh, God, you're messed up. You're not the right? person I thought you were. <laughs> and then you come out that other side <laughs> with a sense of acceptance and a sense that, yes, this person's in my corner. One thing I was curious about, because you're a coach, right? You're not just doing your own work. You're helping other people to do their work and to mm -hmm. improve their lives. Does does partnership, do, do relationships come up a lot in your coaching? Or is that not something that you help people with? It does, you know, on and off. And I always have, you know, boundaries on what I can help with and what I can't. But I always believe that, you know, someone's mental health, someone's relationships affect their physical health. So it's definitely something to approach. Um, but there's a time where I say like, maybe you should talk to a therapist. Maybe you should, you know, um, it's, it's hard, you know, and especially I'm lucky to have a lot of clients who are in super healthy relationships, but occasionally there's someone and you see those red flags and, you know, that's always, I have learned the best thing to do is be like, Hey, I recognize this, but it's not my place to mm. say, you know, but if you ever want to talk or speak to someone, this is what I experienced. Got it. Got it. But generally, it's not a huge, huge part of my work. I okay. So it's mainly around the um, night eating disorder, around food, body image, health, fitness. Yeah, and the whole person. And and I, it's it's, it's so hard. I I hate putting myself in any box because it's like every. I'm trying to box is you just, in. I'm trying to define. I know your role. <laughs> it doesn't work. Every every. I love what I do because it's like every coaching experience is so different and 
what we need to tackle is so different. So I feel like everyone is its own beautiful love story of like meeting each other where we're at, gaining trust, like working together. And the more trust there is, the more communication there is, just like any relationship, the more I see that person just flourish. And it's so cool to see. And, you know, not all relationships work out. Some people aren't ready. Yeah. Some people don't aren't ready to communicate or don't know how. And I do my best. But, you know, for the most part, I'm really lucky that people are ready when they come on board. But every experience is so different. Jillian, this has been amazing having you back on the show. I loved every second of it. And I learned a lot for myself. I hope other people learned stuff as well and took notes. And before we wrap it up, one last question I have for you is, if you were to give people a single habit that they did every single day to better improve their sense of embodiment, their presence, their sexuality, their relationships, one habit, one little action, what would it be? Stop once a day and just listen to what your body's telling you. Because hot damn, if I had done that (laughs) so many times in the past and trusted that like turning in my lower stomach Mm. when someone was not good for me, you know, that instinct that this was too much for me, you know, doing some extreme bodybuilding, whatever it was like listening in or listening to that hunger, to that craving or that need to just feel lonely and cry and let your shit out versus numbing it. I think that is a huge, powerful tool that we don't make enough space or time for. That is a good one. I was not expecting that. I'm going to... Me neither. It just came out. (laughs) I'm glad I asked that question. It just came out because it's genuine, right? It's It comes to the surface because you're intuitive and you've practiced that. You've practiced what you preach. You have that intuition. So I'm just so grateful to have you on the show, Jillian. I wish you all the best. And until we speak again, take care. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. As always, you can find my Instagram at Addictive Podcast. And I'm also going to put a link in the description of this episode if you want to take a look at Jillian's page. She shares a lot of amazing content about body image issues, about sexuality, embodiment. You can reach out to her, actually, if you need a coach, if you need a a life coach around eating disorders or about fitness. She is an amazing resource to have. That's all for me this week. And until next Wednesday, remember, we recover together. Together.